All right. Um, you might be wondering, why is Craig sitting on a stool? Uh, I'm, gonna try, I'm trying something a little bit different today, and the reason is because of Sunday nights. So we, have, uh, we started a Sunday night service, and it's, uh, this, this, is, um, this, is, this is amazing. I love this, but it's, it's a little bit more like, you know, I'm on the stage, you guys are out there. It, it's easy for this to kind of feel like a, uh, like a performance almost or something. That's the last thing I want is for you to think that a sermon is a, is a performance. Uh, Sunday nights, it's a much smaller group. We're upstairs, and it's, it's more like a, it's like a coffee shop where it's sitting around a campfire. It's sitting in a living room. And so I just sit on a stool, and I just, it's, like, it's like we're having a conversation. And so I'm gonna, I don't know if that works in this space like this, but we're going to give it a try. And if you absolutely hate it, I'm sure you'll email me about it and, and tell me. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so here's the question. If you could go back in history and participate in any historical event, what would it be? It's a tricky question, isn't it? Because a lot of the big famous historical events were not ones that you would want to participate in, right? Maybe things maybe would be interesting interesting to watch from a distance, but even that, you probably don't even really want to be there, like 9-11, uh, the dropping of the atomic bomb, the French Revolution, any number of natural disasters. A lot of the famous historical events are famous because of widespread destruction, cataclysm. You, don't wanna, you wouldn't want to be there. So for me, the, the, the one I would want to participate in, I think number one by far, and this won't surprise you because I'm a pastor and we're here in this place, but would be the resurrection of Jesus. To be one of the disciples and witness the resurrection of Jesus, to have, to have gone through the lowest of lows and, and then to, to be brought to the highest of highs, right? To have all your hope dashed and then all of a sudden, here's Jesus, he's alive forever, everything is going to be okay. I mean, just I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. But I, I think number two for me would be the events of Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 2, where you're going to see what, what, this, what, what this chapter was, was all about in, in just a second. But you've got this, this outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples. You've got this empowering for mission and this explosive growth of the early church. And in one sense, that never gets repeated again in history, right? There was one initial outpouring. You get to make one first impression but actually, in, in another sense, some of the things that Pentecost, the events of Pentecost represented, the, the, the outpouring of the Spirit and the empowering for witness and the growth of the church, that, that kind of thing has happened many times since in history. We call those events, we call those periods revivals. And my favorite definition of revival, which some of you have heard me say before, is that revival is the saints getting back to normal. It's Christians and the church living as it was always meant to. This is what we were created for. This is what we were wired for. See, so often the church slips back into this this essentially mediocre existence where we rely on our own strength, our own power, and, and we can kind of keep up appearances for a while, but it really lacks fruit. It, it lacks power. It's all technique and strategy. It's, it's nothing actually of the Holy Spirit. And this state of affairs becomes so widespread, we just accept the normalcy of it. We just think, well, that's just the way it is. But remember, Acts is our origin story. This is who we are. This, this is who we are fundamentally. We are fundamentally a revival people. So as I go through this story, 
to. I, I want to look at what it meant then, but I want to constantly draw lines to today because, because I think actually, as much as I wish I could have been there in Acts 2, I think it's possible to experience something kind of similar in this day and age as well. So let's pray. And we just invite you, Holy Spirit, into this, into this time. I invite you to, to work among us. We were just singing and, and praying that, that heaven would fall down uh, and that the Spirit would be poured out on us and, and that we're desperate for this, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would cultivate, first of all, that, that thirst and that, that desperation for more of your Spirit and, and for heaven to come down and to meet, to meet earth and, and for your kingdom to break through, Lord. We're desperate for it because there's a world out there that does not uh, know you and, and we desperately want them to know you and we can't do it on our own, not even close. And so Holy Spirit, come and empower us in a fresh way today. We invite you here in Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And if you have your Bibles, that's where you want to be. Acts chapter 2, 1 to 12. It'll be on the screen as well. When the day of Pentecost came, they, these disciples, the 120 of them in Jerusalem, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? These are the next two verses that everyone like is like, please never ask me to read these verses in public. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, nah, they've just had too much wine. So I want to look at this two different, uh, two different aspects. I want to look at the, the preparation, kind of the whole anticipation leading up to the event. And then I want to look at the event itself. I want to look at the outpouring of the Spirit. And for each of those, I want to look at it from two different perspectives. The perspective of the crowds and the perspective of the disciples. Make sense? All got it? So, preparation. I like how I just like say that and nobody responds and I just keep going. So, preparation of, of the disciples. Let's talk about that first. And... The first thing to say, I think, is that at first glance, it doesn't look like the disciples are prepared for this. Because how could they be? Jesus told them to go, they, they would wait for power, and then they would go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. They were supposed to tell the world about Jesus, that salvation was to be found in this Jewish rabbi who had lived and died uh, and, and rose again. That was, that was their job. But they were a bunch of Galilean fishermen. 
They stank like fish. They had unsophisticated accents. How are they supposed to tell the world this message? How are they supposed to tell their own people? I mean, in Jerusalem, you've got all of these rabbis who know the scriptures inside and out, backwards and forwards. And these blue-collar, rural hillbillies are supposed to convince them who, what, what the scriptures are really about and that the scriptures are actually about this man that they just finished killing, these rabbis. I mean, how is that going to work? It's absurd. One scholar compared it to like a bunch of West Virginia hillbillies trying to go to MIT and convincing scientists about some point about chemistry. If you're, if you're from West Virginia, I don't mean any of his. It was the scholar's words, not mine. I can give you a name if you need an apology. The point is, it, it's crazy. It just doesn't work. But I actually think that's kind of the point, isn't it? This is what Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, we have this treasure this treasure being the good news about Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning us, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's, it's like God has rigged it so that the only way the gospel can advance in the world is if it's all by his power and, and really not very much to do with us at all. It's, it's almost like he's designed it that way. And that's as true today in the 21st century as it was in the first. I mean, we live in this time with all of these advancements in technology, this accumulation of, of knowledge, and we're supposed to go and tell the world that a man who lived 2,000 years ago was raised from the dead and is the savior of the world, is, is son of God. That's, that's our job. And, and we live right here, we, we, we minister in a place like Deep Cove, which is one of the most affluent and, and maybe disinterested uh, in Christian faith kinds of areas in, in one of the most affluent and, and, and uh, non-Christian cities in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, here in Deep Cove, the, uh, the percentage of people who have a university degree or higher is 20% more than the BC average as a whole, which is already pretty high. The average income in households in Deep Cove is 75% higher than the average BC household income, which again is, we're already an affluent province. This neighborhood, this area, even more so. So these, these affluent, educated people who don't have a lot of expressed needs, and we're supposed to tell them that they should surrender their lives to a Jewish man who lived and died 2,000 years ago. Like seriously, guys. What's going on here? <laughs> it's not going to come from us. There's no way. We don't have a shot at it. And, and again, actually, maybe that is part of the preparation. Maybe that is part of the point that neither the disciples in the first century nor us in the 21st can convince ourselves that we're able to accomplish this on our own. The disciples were prepared in terms of a Jesus education. Uh, they didn't have a formal education like the rabbis did, but they did have a Jesus education, which counted for something. They were taught how to understand the scriptures. We looked at this in Luke 24 last week, that Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. They could understand how all of what we call the Old Testament points to Jesus, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. 
And it's the same thing today. We said this last week, that it is so crucial that we as Christians have an understanding of the Scriptures, that we understand how these pieces all fit together and how they all point to Christ. And we have that. We've been given that education. It's called the New Testament. It's, it's a lesson in how to understand how the Old Testament points to Jesus. The disciples were also prepared because they had been handpicked by Jesus. This was his team. And you might question the wisdom of his choices, but hey, he's king and lord, and these are the guys he chose, even to the point of choosing Judas's replacement. We looked at that last week, Matthias. That was Jesus's choice. He said that this, this, this is my guy. And uh, I'll, I'll talk about this more at the end of this morning, but I really believe that God is, he's putting together a team here at the Bridge Church. I, I see that, and, and I'll share that at the end, but I, I really believe that God is bringing together people with a common vision and, and purpose. And finally, and, and probably most of all, the disciples were prepared for what was about to happen through prayer. Talked about this last week too. They were devoted to it. They were constantly meeting together for prayer. This, this was their habit. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes, it sure looks like they're gathered in one place. They're likely praying. This is just this is what they were doing. And what else could they do? Again, given the scope of the mission, what else did they have to rely on? Now, prayer is essentially uh, surrendering space to God. It, it's saying to God, here is room for you to work. It's, it's giving space for him to work in our lives and in the lives of others and in, in, in the world. We are saying to God here, we are, we are committing this to you. That, that's what prayer is. And, and so prayer prepares us for God to fill, to, to move into that space. And, and there too, I really, I see that God is doing that at the Bridge Church, that he is, is calling us into a deeper commitment to prayer. Even this, this last week, 24-7 prayer, according, I don't, maybe, maybe some people forgot, maybe some people slept in. Nate told me he fell asleep three minutes before his time slot was done. Shame, man, just shame. It was two in the morning, yeah. Uh, but according to that, we, we did it, guys, we did it! Woo! For those of you who don't know, we, we had, uh, we had, Nate, I'm sorry, just public shaming in the middle of the service. This, this is the kind of thing that works better on Sunday night. Everyone's like, this is terrible. Okay, so uh, we did it. We, we, had, we divvied up the whole week into hour-long slots, and, uh, and we covered every one of them. And it was great to see in the middle of the week, uh, those slots were just flying off the board. People were signing up for them. It was great. I even got to sleep through the night one or two times. It was awesome. Um, I, I see with Monday noon prayer, a few years ago, we struggled to get like two or three people out to, to pray regularly on Mondays at noon. Might be the case tomorrow on Thanksgiving Monday, but, but recently we've had no problem having 10 plus people. Uh, we've got, I've heard of people who have made prayer way more central in their lives, in their families, in their workplaces, and the impact that's made, what that, how that has changed things. If God prepares people through an outpouring of his spirit by prayer, well, that's kind of exciting, isn't it? Isn't it kind of exciting to see that God is calling our church into a deeper commitment to prayer? I think it's pretty good. So in, in all of these ways, the, the disciples were being prepared. There was this, this anticipation of what was going to come. Now let's talk about the crowds from the perspective of the crowds. 
So they're all in Jerusalem for something called Pentecost. Another uh, name for that is the, the Festival of Weeks. So there were these major, there were three major Jewish festivals throughout the year. Uh, Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And then Pentecost. Penta is the Greek word for 50. If you're taking notes, that's a fun little note to make. It doesn't help you in life at all. But Penta is Greek for 50. And it happened about, it happened 50 days after Passover. And in Jewish tradition, it was connected with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which happened roughly two months after, after Passover. So, deliverance from slavery and bondage, followed by, about two months later, a gift from on high. Passover, followed by Pentecost. The deliverance that comes through the cross of Jesus followed by the outpouring of the gift of the Spirit from on high. It was almost like God had planned this, you know? I don't know. And then you've got these Jewish settlements that are spread throughout the ancient world, called the Diaspora. Uh, Centuries before, the Jews had been exiled from their homeland. They had ended up scattered all over the ancient Mediterranean world. And, and those were communities of Jews who were speaking the languages of the lands where they were now living, who were adopting some of those cultural practices, but still wanted to be faithful Jews. And part of what that meant was coming back to Jerusalem for these, for these feasts. And Pentecost happened at the time of the year when the weather was the best. And when, tra- when, 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 uh, when travel was the easiest. If you're sailing, you know, this is, this is in the best weather possible. So scholars estimate that Jerusalem was about 25 to 30,000 people normally. Uh, and then during feasts like Pentecost especially, it would swell to 100 to 200,000 people packed into a city that was regularly inhabited by 30,000. I mean, people in Deep Cove hate it when, uh, when people come here in the summer, right? They, we, we'd rather you not come if you're from other places. Like, don't visit us. Can you imagine like 200,000 people in Deep Cove? The paddleboard traffic jams in the water? It'd be nuts, right? Jerusalem is just packed with people. And so you never had a more captive and expansive audience in Jerusalem than right here at Pentecost. Again, it's almost like God was planning something. And then, on top of all of that, not only was the feast packed with significance, not only was Jerusalem packed with people, but even the time of history was packed with meaning. Paul gets at this a couple of times in, uh, in his letters. In Romans 5, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. It's almost like Paul thinks that when Jesus came was, was like this, this fullness of time. He says in Galatians, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Actually, in verse 1 of, chapter, of, of Acts chapter 2, we read when the, the day of Pentecost came, but that's a really vanilla, granola way of, of translating that word because it really the Greek word has to do with fullness. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled, there's this idea that the time is pregnant. It's ripe. Things are coming together at exactly this moment for what's about to happen. And a couple of ideas about why that was, historically speaking. One is that that you had the Roman Empire at the height of its power at this moment. 
You've maybe heard of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that because the Romans were totally in charge, there was, there was very little conflict within the Roman Empire. You could travel from place to place really easily. In fact, it was like this window of time, never before, never afterwards, in the ancient world, when ideas and communication could be transferred from place to place really easily. So there's one piece of it. The other piece is that while there wasn't a lot of conflict in the Roman Empire, there was a lot of turmoil in Judea among the Jews because they were not a fan of the Roman occupation. They couldn't care less for the Pax Romana. Uh, in fact, there, within a generation after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a war that broke out between the Jews and the Romans that resulted in the massacre of, of perhaps a million Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so this whole period leading up to it, there's this unrest. And there is this, people are asking questions. And they're, they're perhaps open to new perspectives, new ideas, because it's, it's getting pretty intense. Now, as soon as I, I talk about those two things, I, I right away think about our day today, right? I mean, think about how easy it is to communicate messages in our day and age it's, it's easier than the Pax Romana ever could have dreamt of. I mean, you, you, you send messages around the world at the, at the click of a button. It's so, like despite the travel restrictions right now, news spreads really, really fast. And at the same time, you have this unrest and this turmoil that I don't know if we've experienced in the Western world in quite a while. When I was, you know, when I was growing up, some of you are like, you're still growing up. What are you talking about? When I was growing up, uh, I, I think my generation, us millennials, earlier on, elder millennials, just assumed that the world was uh, a stable place. We grew up after the, the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall. Uh, we, we grew up after the fall of communism. So we, we kind of grew up with this, with this feeling like the democracy and freedom, these things are given, the world order. This will always be the way it is. There's this stability. And all of a sudden, a lot of that stuff is going out the window. All of a sudden, we've got this pandemic that makes us feel vulnerable, that has people asking big questions and searching for answers to make sense of all of this. Now, none of these things in the first century or the 21st century are unqualified positives, right? Because all of the things we're talking about in society right now, big tech censorship, misinformation, fake news, it's all a, a result of that same dual reality. It's all a result of the openness of communication and the widespread social turmoil. So it's not an unqualified positive, but it does seem to leave an opening. It does seem to, to give a, a certain ripeness and pregnancy to the time in terms of communicating the good news of Jesus. Could it be that in this time, God is preparing not only his church, but also the world for a new missional movement? That's the preparation piece. Let's talk about the actual outpouring, what actually happens in Acts chapter 2. And let's talk about it from the perspective of the disciples. So they're all together in one place. Uh, some debate about whether it's in the temple or in an upper room where they all met together. Either way, they're all together, 120 of them in Jerusalem, likely praying, and the Holy Spirit shows up. The, the promise, the, the promise of the prophets come to fulfillment. What Jesus said 
would happen now happens. And, and it, it mani- it's, it's manifested with, in, in a couple of different kind of phenomena. The first is an audible phenomenon. It's, it's the wind. It's, it's the sound of a wind. It's not actually the wind, but it's the sound of a mighty blowing wind. Can you just imagine this? Okay, so just close, close your eyes. And just imagine that you are in this, this room with 120 others. You're praying, you're waiting, you're longing for this gift to come. And then you hear this. <sighs> Would that not send shivers down your spine? Just to hear that. <sighs> now, It makes sense that the Spirit came with the sound of a wind because actually the Greek and the Hebrew both uh, have a word. In Greek, it's pneuma. In Hebrew, it's ruach, which both means spirit, wind, and breath. So there's this connection between spirit and and wind in both languages. But, But Jesus also, in his conversation with Nicodemus, this Jewish rabbi in John chapter 3, said that the Spirit is like the wind. He blows wherever he pleases. Um, this, the Spirit is invisible and yet is this extraordinarily powerful uh, person who, uh, who moves hearts and lives. So the Spirit is like the wind. And, and then the, the visible phenomenon, I, won't, I didn't actually get Rodrigo to make tongues of fire separate on each one of us. Didn't simulate that one. But, but tongues of fire separating and settling on all of the disciples. And just like the wind makes sense, the, the fire makes a lot of sense too. Um, fire, uh, what, what does fire do? Fire, fire enlightens. Fire gives light, shows people the way. The Spirit, Jesus said, would, the Spirit would, would guide people into truth. Fire uh, fire uh, evokes the, the idea of God's passion. The Spirit cultivates in us God's passion for righteousness, for holiness. Fire purifies. It burns away chaff. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin and that the Spirit would lead us into righteousness and teach us about judgment. Those are, those are purifying things. Those are, those are fire-like Things And maybe most of all, the fire in the Old Testament scriptures represents God's presence. In the, in the wilderness, God led his people through a pillar of fire at night. He got Moses' attention by setting a bush on fire without burning it up. He showed his power to the Israelites in Elijah's day by sending fire from heaven and consuming a drenched altar again and again fire represents god's presence his holy presence among his people but now the fire comes and it rests on and later on we find out dwells in the disciples all of them not just one of them not just peter not just a a select few but all of the disciples we read that right the fire rested on each one of them now, if, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, and, and not all of you are, and I'm so glad that you're here, but if you are a follower of Jesus, do you understand this? That you have fire inside of you. You have the holy presence of God Almighty dwelling inside of you. Why is it that we, we, we think it's okay to live a life that really doesn't look any different from everybody else around us, except maybe with a little bit less swearing. 
Why, why do we think it's acceptable to live a, a double life where we live one way among church people and another way among everybody else for the rest of the week? Why are we okay with being lukewarm? And, and we, we seem to think that that's just like another way of being a Christian. Why, why, do, we, why do we think that, that if the masses aren't banging on our doors to be let in on this, why do we think that if, if people aren't continually coming to faith and being baptized, that this is just somehow normal and, and totally fine? Guys, we've got fire living inside of us. We, we've got the Holy Spirit empowering, burning, purifying, convicting, leading us, the power of God Almighty dwelling within us as a church. Now we read that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that they got the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and then they never had to think about it or worry about it again, which is how some people think, right? You become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit, and that's that. You do get the Holy Spirit, but that's not that. Because even in the book of Acts, later on, these same disciples are going to be filled again with the Holy Spirit in response to prayer, in response to a situation where things are beyond their, their ability to deal with, which is basically the entirety of Christian faith. Um, but, but in response to those things, they're filled again. It's why Paul, in Ephesians 5, instructs Christians who have the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit. And he uses a present continuous verb. He's saying, be being filled, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Because listen, you've got fire living inside of you, but the fire can grow cold. And the fire can be quenched. The fire has to be tended to. The fire has to be fed. You know what I mean? It's, it's why the events in Acts chapter 2, in one sense, are unrepeatable. But what it points to, the need to be empowered by the Spirit, to be witnesses, is an ongoing, it's an ongoing need. That continual renewal, that continual reform, that continual filling of the Holy Spirit. It's like Leviticus 6, that passage that kind of inspired us last week, says the fire has to keep on burning. The fire on God's altar can't, can't go out. It's got to continually burn. Don't let the fire don't let the fire die out. So the disciples are filled with the Spirit. The fire comes down upon them. The wind of God blows on them. That's from their perspective. Now let's look at it from the disciples, from the, from the crowd's perspective. The disciples are filled and, and they start to speak. They're praising God. They're happy, right? This is what they have been waiting for, what they've been praying for. So they are praising God. They're so excited. They're celebrating but the words that are coming out of their mouths are not coming out in languages that they have ever learned before. They are coming out in languages that other people have learned before, specifically all of these people who are in Jerusalem from all over the Jewish dispersion around the world. They're hearing it in their own languages. And, and they're, they're pretty shocked because, again, these are Galileans unsophisticated, uneducated, unimpressive fishermen. And they're speaking all of these dialects. And so the crowds are genuinely curious, like, what is happening here? What is going on? There's this openness to hear more. 
Now, I want to note a few things about this. The first is that while there is an openness from a lot of people, it's not widespread across the board. There are some people right at the end who say, no, 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 this is not, this isn't from God. This, there's nothing supernatural about this. We, 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 don't, we don't like what's happening here. We're not going to chalk it up to anything, anything transcendent. We're just going to chalk it up to alcohol. It's, it's just the slurrings of a bunch of drunkards. That's all it is. And you need to know that whenever revival comes, whenever the Holy Spirit is poured out in a fresh way, not everybody gets on board. There are going to be people who look at it and say, no, not for me. I don't want to have any part of this. That always happens. And it also reminds us that Jesus generally doesn't bludgeon people over the head. He generally leaves it open for people to to choose and to choose to reject him. Once in a while, he maybe bludgeons people over the head. I think he did with Paul. I don't think Paul had much of a choice, and we'll get to that story later on. But I think for the most part, Jesus gives freedom. And so, yeah, there's this incredible sign, this incredible thing that's happening, but it's still possible for people to look at it and go, nope. And so you're searching for a miracle. If you're somebody who's like, I need to see a miracle in order to believe, just be warned that you may have already experienced it. You may have already seen it. It's kind of your choice whether to believe in him or not on the basis of what he's done. So that's one thing. Second thing is that there's some confusion here about what kind of tongues we're talking about because the Bible talks about another kind of gift of tongues which some of you have heard about as well and in a lot of Pentecostal churches. It's, it's, a, it's a gift that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. He seems to refer to it as tongues of angels, uh, speech, languages that humans can't comprehend. He says that when he prays in tongues, and he says he does pray in tongues more than all of these Corinthians, uh, that, that, he, that when he prays in tongues, his, his spirit prays, but his mind is unfruitful. And so he tells them, don't pray in tongues in the gathered assembly because no one can understand you unless there's an interpreter which is a very different kind of thing, it seems, than what's happening in Acts chapter 2, where the the whole point is that people can understand the disciples. These are languages that people speak. So it looks like it's two different kinds of things. However, it might be possible that they're two manifestations of the same essential gift. I, I heard a story, and there are many stories like this, but just one story was of a British pastor who was praying for an Arabic man who was, who was quite sick. And the British pastor only knew English, but he would pray in tongues. He's a charismatic guy, he's praying in tongues. And so he prayed in tongues over this, over this man who was sick. And this Arabic man all of a sudden was just astounded because the British pastor was, was praying in fluent Persian. And then he switched over to fluent Ugaritic, which was a dead language, but one that this Arabic man happened to know. And the the message in both of those languages was exactly the same. And so this Arabic man was kind of taken aback by this, ended up becoming a, a follower of Jesus and an evangelist to others. So, sometimes tongues, I think, the, the, the gift of tongues can be other languages that we've maybe never learned, but the Spirit enables us to speak in that way. So some of you were confused at the beginning. You're even more confused now. Moving on. Um, 
I, I, despite all that conversation about what kind of tongues is it, how does this work, I, I, I don't want us to lose sight of, of the significance of what happens at Pentecost. You know, there's that story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel, where this, this group of people pridefully wants to build this tower up to the heavens to be like God, right? That's, that's their motivation. And God scatters them and he confuses their languages. Now, Acts 2 isn't exactly a reversal of that because, because there still are a lot of different languages. It's not like all of a sudden start speaking, everyone starts speaking the same language. It's just that now here is a message that can be and needs to be translated into every tongue, every language. This is a message that needs to get out to the ends of the world. So God has has ordained it, he's arranged it so this crowd of people from all over the Roman Empire have gathered together, they see the power of God, they hear the good news about Jesus, and they're going to go out. They're going to go out filled with the Spirit, they're going to go out planting churches, they're going to go out telling people about Jesus. It's the big theme in Acts. The news about Jesus is not supposed to stay inside it's not, to, it's not to just stay in the holy huddle. It is designed to go out. It's meant to go out right from the start, right at Pentecost. Let's get this into as many tongues and languages as possible because everybody needs to hear about Jesus. Which leads me to the, the final point I want to make about this. Which is, is that the miracle of tongues is not the point. It's not enough in and of itself. And here's, here's the punchy one-liner. Actually, it's a two-liner. Are you ready for this? I don't really... Some, so I read these... I, like Nate and I, we read these old pastors sometimes, and the whole book is full, full of these one-liners, just underlining everything. I say, I say one catchy thing like every six months. So mark this down. The point is not the power. The point is who the power points to. See, the, the, the miracle itself wasn't enough. It was, the point wasn't that people would be like, wow, what a cool thing, and they go back home. The point was to point them to Jesus. I mean, in, in the story about the British pastor and the Arabic man, the British pastor would have needed to explain to him, this is who Jesus is. And it's exactly what Peter does in Acts 2. Right after this, there's the power, and it leads to an openness to hear about Jesus. You see, some people are obsessed with the miracle and they're obsessed with the power and other people are so scared of the power or so scared off by abuses of the power that they just stay away from the thing altogether. But both, both have lost the plot because the Spirit always, always, always glorifies Jesus. Remember, the point is never the power. The point is who the power points to. The point is always Jesus. And so we invite the Holy Spirit. We seek the power of the Holy Spirit among us, not just so that we have power, not just so that the world will be somewhat impressed, but so that we can make Jesus known. Amen? So this past week, 24-7 prayer. And uh, I, I was one of the people who often took some of the, the middle-of-the-night shifts, which makes sense because I initiated it, and I've got some skin in the game. So I was a lot of times taking the, you know, the, graveyard, the graveyard hours. And, uh, and I felt kind of bad because I was depriving you of a blessing because 
I know you don't believe me, but those genuinely are. Like, those are the best prayer times I've ever had, is walking through the city at like two in the morning, and everything is just quiet, and you see the lights. It's just, it's a little bit scary with the skunks and the raccoons that rule the nights in North Vancouver. But other than that, it's, it's beautiful. It's so good. And so one night, middle of the night, I'm walking, and, uh, and a lot of these pieces just kind of came together. I, I thought about how so often I have um, I've complained to God about where he has called me. Not here at the bridge, but, but in greater Vancouver. I've spent basically my whole adult ministry, life of pastoral ministry here in greater Vancouver. And again, it's, it's, an, it's an affluent place. It's, it's a place where, where it's one of the, maybe the least Christian city in the Western Hemisphere. And it's a, it's a difficult place in some ways. And, and sometimes I have complained to God and said to him, I really wish that he would have sent me to a place where there was more openness to the gospel. And that night, he showed me probably in a more significant way than ever before, that if I had been called to a place like that, I might have believed, I might have become persuaded that my own gifts uh, as a pastor were enough to carry the day. I might have become persuaded that if you could just put a a bunch of techniques and strategies together and have really good branding, that that would do the the trick, you know? That would would make a church grow. I I might have been convinced of that. But instead, he, he sent me to a place like North Vancouver, beautiful, amazing place. I love living here. But he sent me to a place where I, I, there's no way that I could believe that, where I would be forced to depend wholly and entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit because nothing else is going to move the needle in a place like this. And then I thought about how he's been preparing me personally. You know, I, I grew up in churches that never, ever talked about revival. That whole word, that whole idea never, would never reach the lips of those preaching in the churches I grew up in. We didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. I mean, those things were foreign to me, but in the last decade, it's like the whole of the thirst and the burden and the vision that God has given me. And he's led me to all these preachers and writers over the centuries that share that same vision and passion. And I, I just think if, if God, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't look for that. I didn't ask for that. It's just something that God has placed upon me as this, this is the hope of the church. And, and does he give a desire and a vision without the intention to actually bring it to fulfillment. A desire that glorifies him. Does he do that without desiring to fulfill it? And then I thought about, or he showed me, how he's been preparing us as a church. I mentioned this earlier, but, but you know, a, a lot of times I, I think about some of the people who have left our church for various reasons over the years, and I dwell on that, and, and, and it hurts, and it's painful but the truth is God has brought so many more people to us. And, and, and that so many of the people that he has brought to us are people who are passionate about evangelism and committed to praying into that, who share that, that same 
heart and that same mind. It's like God is preparing us as a church. And now he's placed us here and he's given us this building. I mean, he is preparing us. I don't think he's giving us all of this. I don't think he's giving us people. I don't think he's giving us this space, this building, just so that we can kind of enjoy it for ourselves. I think he's preparing us for a movement. I think he's preparing us to see an inbreaking of the kingdom in our community. I think he's preparing us to see many come to faith in him. And I think he's preparing our community itself. I, I think there are glimmers of, of, of an opening, of a new thirst for him that the pandemic has, has brought about and that the presence, I think, of our congregation here is bringing about. So you put this all together. I believe maybe more strongly than ever before, that God really wants to do something incredible in and through us. I really believe that that God wants to pour out his spirit and empower us to be his witnesses. And I think what it really boils down to is whether we as a church want that. Whether we as a church, as individuals, will actually give him space to do that whether we will be committed to repentance, to turning away from from idols, to turning away from false hopes and turning to Him, whether we will be committed to prayer and to the Word and to fellowship, to life together. You see, I, I really, really believe that if we follow the example of the early disciples, that the events of Acts chapter 2 We don't have to go back in history to see them, that we will see something like that happen among us. Let's pray. God, I want to to personally give thanks, Lord, for for what you showed me this past week. And for that that renewed conviction that you are up to something here at the Bridge Church. You're up to something here in North Vancouver. I thank you, God, for that. God, I I thank you so much that that Acts 2, while in some ways unparalleled, wasn't uh, what wasn't just, it's not just something that we look back on and, and kind of reflect on and think, wow, what a great time to be a part of. But, but Lord, that we can see that happen. We can see the filling of the Spirit. We can see that empowerment for witness. We can see that revival take place again in our day. Lord, I don't, I don't know when you'll do it. I don't know if you're doing it this morning. I don't know if you'll do it sometime in the future. But I know, Lord, that if we are set apart for you, if we, are, if we are committed, Lord, to repentance and to worship and to prayer and to the word and to, and to unity, Lord, that you are going to do this. You are going to do it, God. You are a good God. You desire to bless us. You desire to give us your presence. You desire to fill us with your spirit. You desire to make the name of Jesus known in this city and in this culture. And so, Lord... I want to surrender to you as shepherd of this church. I want to surrender to you. I want to commit myself to you. I want to say, Lord, use me however you will. And I just want to invite you who are here and on live stream just to to do the same. To 
surrender to the Lord and to say to him, God, whatever you want to do in and through me, do it. Invite him to fill you and to fill us as a church with his Holy Spirit.